What do you think about... Uh, I, I want to know, what do you think about Mike Gravel, the meme? Not the candidate. Mike Gravel, the meme. I don't, know, I don't think I know Mike Gravel, the meme. I know the candidate. Is Are they in the candidate? You're talking about the candidate that's... Uh, Speaking truth to power. <laughs> classic case of speaking truth classic to power. Classic case of speaking truth to power. I love speaking truth to power. I do it every day. As Alex, uh, my girlfriend, uh, which you know that. I'm just clarifying for the audience. Uh, yes, I do fuck. <laughs> uh, has, a, has a brewery in her hometown. It's Yellow Springs Brewery. Yeah. And their tagline is, crafting truth to power and every time I see that I just want to <laughs> I don't even like speaking truth to power as a phrase <laughs> yeah that's even much worse. less <laughs> crafting truth to power dude that is bad that is so bad I find the Mike Gravel thing interesting um, because I think in 20, 2019 we finally have reached the singularity in politics to where we now have candidates as sort of cultural signifiers. Yeah. They're not even really... I mean, to me, like, the Mike Gravel... Like, I don't really get the impression that anybody's really serious about him. Let me ask you a question. Are you just... Is this the long-winded way of saying that you're not hashtag Gravel I'm Gang? A, <laughs> I guess I'm not a Gravel Gang. <laughs> wow. Well, the only reason why is because it just feels kind of like a meme. <laughs> yeah, right. It feels kind of like gritty. You know, remember when everybody was like trying to appropriate gritty as like a leftist uh, yeah. icon? Mike's saying all the right things, standing for all the right things, and then we're just going to find out that like he had dinner with Milo, you know, whatever. The I fuck think he literally did. Really? He, yeah, he's been on a few like right wing, uh, or I think he's even been on a few like anti Semitic podcasts. And well, this stuff, is interesting. This is, this is interesting because I feel like. And it's just like even like what you were talking about, like how your brother was telling you that your mom thinks you're a neo-Nazi. Man. There oh, is, fuck. to the uninitiated, there is a thin line. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's right, everybody. I received the devastating news this week that my own mother thinks I'm a neo-Nazi. Well, she was trying... I wish I would have had my brother on the show to explain this. But apparently she was trying to explain to him my beliefs while they were at a restaurant... And she was like pointing at the cashier or the uh, waiter or something behind the bar. And was like, "See that right there?" Terrence believes that like, the government should pay that guy's wages, and that nobody else will be able to make any money. And as a result, I'm a Nazi. <laughs> Not even a Nazi, a neo-Nazi. Like, like what? Like, I, so I was like trying to come on, Betsy. Yeah, I was trying to probe him. I was like, "Does she think I like?" that I support Hitler <laughs> I dude I don't know it really disturbs me <laughs> there do you think there is do you think there is a uh, sort of um effort I don't know by who I mean I mean you know lib liberals conservatives they're like everybody that was in little McCarthyism these days it seems like with the uh, quote unquote resurgence of the new left oh now. yeah yeah but do you think there's a concerted effort by people that know better to try to uh, tether the left to Nazism? Like, people that aren't initiated in this and, like, understand yeah, how it works to, like, sort of... I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, you know, it's just kind of like the both sides thing. Well, you know what I mean? Or, or like, how liberals will sort of equate, um, you know, the left with... You know, or just say like the radical left is just as bad as the right wing extremists. Yeah. Well, I think that they see a form of authoritarianism. To them, it looks like. To them, like all authoritarianism is the same, I guess. Yeah. It's the same reason that like people always do the sort of body count with like Hitler had X amount of bodies, Stalin had Y, Mao had Z. And. I think that people see authoritarianism like across the board as like an expression of the same sort of anti-human impulse or whatever. When in reality, I mean, like it's like the the nuance is actually way uh, like the th the thing about Stalin isn't like 
you know, y you can't really like, you know, romanticize him as like bringing the sort of socialism into, you know, the only thing you can really give him credit for is beating the Nazis in World War Two, which good on good on you, Joe. That's right. good. We can tame multitudes, you know. The thing about you don't always get it right. Right, right. Hey, Joe right. didn't always get it right. <laughs> right. The thing about Stalin is he's no different than Mitch McConnell or any of these other people. He understood that you have to eliminate the political opposition if you want to bring your plan into fruition. He was just a dumb brute, and the only way he did it <laughs> just force is all he just, well, yeah, did it with violence and force. Mitch like, ain't built like that. Yeah, he exactly. just has money and just wields that money and yeah. just to big dick people. Well, and the thing is, like Mitch and other people, you know, um, you know, Stalin was probably closer to like a Nixon type figure. You know, just brute, just a dumb brute, just like pure force, just try to eliminate them that way. No. But like McConnell and others are sort of savvy enough to know that like the true elimination of the opposition is to basically make them irrelevant. In to the, to uh, make them irrelevant in the marketplace of ideas. Make them irrelevant in the marketplace of ideas. I love saying <laughs> shit like marketplace of ideas. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do too. Um, I think that shit is awesome. Uh no I I don't know man don't I don't really know what I'm talking about that was a good way to to reach and tease our interview yeah. today <laughs> I just need to say though that my mother does not think I'm a neo-Nazi because of anything I've said in terms of uh my you know my beliefs about ethnic groups or race <laughs> or anything like that white supremacy or whatever. <laughs> You brought it up. You dug me into this hole. You dug you dug the hole out from underneath me. Jesus. She thinks this because she thinks that, and I, and I would assume that other people are like this too. People, there are people out there who think that a society in which people can't just make money hand over fist in an unregulated way, just you know, if people don't have that freedom and liberty to do so, that that is a totalitarian society bordering on Nazism. I'll, I'm not gonna insult your intelligence and and tell you whatever. That it like my my interpretation of that is that I would like to live in a world that is totalitarian enough to say, yeah, you can't live like that. I'm sorry, we cannot we cannot just have unhindered growth that gobbles up the fucking environment and people's lives and health and stuff. And I think the only way you can do that is with a a strong coercive government. Um, I might change my opinion on that someday and you know maybe if we can get to a place where we can I would like to have a society that's more of like a sort of anarchist society where there is no uh, government or anything like that you know we can there's maybe if there is a government it's more of an administrative thing but um, if we're going to get through the next couple of decades of the worst impacts of climate change like we're probably going to need a very very um, strong <laughs> government to so, do that week to week it's funny because you know we talk about this amongst ourselves all the time that some of our friends out west think we're bourgeois sock dams and some of our friends on the east coast think that we're like hillbilly tankies <laughs> a point for our friends on the east coast this week after that after them. <laughs> i guess so i guess you're right um but i guess what i wanted to say that is that uh, you know uh obviously like you know, Nazism is a, um, it's not nihilism, it's a... We don't think you're Nazi. <laughs> okay, all right. You don't need to go on an apology tour here. I don't think anybody thinks you're Nazi. All right, man, I just, I'm telling you... Except it, the woman that gave birth to you, apparently. <laughs> it fucks with my head because I'm like, does this person, does, does she just hate... You don't even have the haircut. Oh, you're right. She's going to hear this you anyways. You take a little tighter on the sides and back yeah. if you want to be a Nazi. Yeah, you're right. Well, it's like, you, you hear that and you're like, okay, like... Does she hate me? <laughs> like, you know, she loves me, obviously, but, like, as a person, maybe she just doesn't think too highly of my opinion. Well, no, I think, she, I think she loves you. I just think that she wants to beat you in the marketplace of ideas. <laughs> the ultimate battleground. Interesting. <laughs> Man, that's a... That's a well, I think it's another reason why it kind of fucked me up, is because, like, like, if you don't have a family 
in which anybody really agrees with you politically. It's just incredibly isolating, and you're just oh, like, yeah. oh, and so, yeah. and so you'll think you'll know you'll have conversations, you'll have arguments, you'll have debates, you'll have this, that, the other. You'll be like, oh, I made some real headway this time. I did, you know, I was a, <laughs> I was a good. You go away feeling good, then your little brother comes to visit you, and <laughs> like you mom, really took five yeah. steps back. <laughs> man, mom thinks you're a Nazi man. <laughs> so, well, um. But anyways, all right. So I teed us up a second ago, and then I'm I, sorry, I didn't mean to derail us. No, I derailed us uh, because I had my own um, neurotic meltdown. But um, to tee up what we were just talking about, <clears throat> our episode this week is about Mitch McConnell, and um, I think you'll like it. It's a, a good, honest look at politics. <laughs> Dude, I've had like three hours of sleep. <laughs> it's a good, <laughs> honest look at the marketplace of ideas. Of ideas. And Man. what happens when one contestant shows up with none with... but an insatiable thirst for power? It, that's exactly right. That is exactly yeah. right. And so our guest this week is Alex Perrine, yeah. who wrote the source material for this week. If you haven't checked it out, go check it out. It's at the New Republic. And it's called The Nihilist in Chief. Pretty good. Uh, I listened to the audio version, <clears throat> and the guy that reads it is like, uh, he's got this very... It did really add a lot. I did. I listened to you, you listen it to twice it? driving. It added a lot of gravity to the it piece. <laughs> that guy was like... Yeah. <laughs> but Mitch had no core beliefs. <laughs> Well, it made me think, like, I could have a future in... You looked into his eyes, and there was no soul there to be found. <laughs> what of us... Dude, I get comments all the time that say you should be an audiobook narrator. I was, I was talking with our buddy Libby from time to time, and I, I wouldn't put these out there on Main Street to blow anybody's spot up. And I'm flattered in a way, but in another way, it's slightly weirded out that people will write me and want me to say things. And... <laughs> And read things. And one of the stranger ones that I've ever had in my life was, and I've told you about this before, is um, I had somebody that wanted me to read from John Meacham's biography of Andrew Jackson. Um, really? Yeah. I don't know if you've ever told me I've never, ta- never Maybe told you, you that. It's literally probably on a podcast episode, and somebody's like, oh, yeah, he did, episode 39. Yeah. Y- y'all are... So y'all are my memory at this point. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's we we've not done a good job cataloging this show at all. People, are, what episode is that? I don't know. Um, why, but anyway, yeah. I've, why that book specifically? I have no idea. Interesting. Other other people want me to record a voicemail message. I don't know. So. <laughs> there you have. It. Well, my friend Madison. Shout out to Madison. She's listening to this. She had never really listened to us before. And she texted me the other day. I'm trying to find the text message. It was basically just like, oh, yeah. She said, I don't even know, want to know what Tom looks like because his voice is sexy as fuck. <laughs> so I, I, from time to time, people will say uh, that I sound like Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Whatever, and yeah. What they don't know is that I, uh, I look like Jeff McConaughey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, well, okay. be- before we get started with this interview, um, two things. First of all, uh, I plugged it at the end of this episode, but I want to plug it again. Fuck it. Uh, I wrote something in the Baffler that I want you to go read. It's about rural. Um, it's about getting real about rural America, um, and uh, it's not a retreading of our episode from last week. It's all new ideas, folks. Got new ideas in that motherfucker. And managed to get the Hobbs High Fight song in there, too. So. Hell yeah. Oil Derrick's at night. Yeah. And, um... I'm acquainted with you. The... You're acquainted. You're yeah. familiar with it. <laughs> yeah. So go check that out. It's at the Baffler. And then, uh, the second thing is go subscribe to the Patreon. Um, we have a good episode with Tanya, um, f- this past weekend. It was a pretty funny ep- episode. Yeah. I thought it was pretty goddamn hilarious. Hmm. Um, so go ch- go subscribe to the Patreon. Uh, we have weekly episodes there every Sunday. Um, you know, you're cleaning your house, cleaning your car, 
sitting around in your ass. I don't know. Whatever you like to do on Sunday. Go what? hang out with the Trillbillies. Bring the Trillbillies right. into your Sunday. Come hang out with us a little yeah, bit. Yeah, do that a little bit. Just uh, bring us into your marketplace of ideas. Yeah. Yeah. We'll hang out with you. Um, so $5 a month. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trillbilly Workers Party. And let's get started on this interview with Alex Perrine. And um, enjoy. Ever since this race began, D. Huddleston has been running away from his record. But now Kentucky is closing in. Against school prayer, give away your Panama Canal. D. runs and D. hides. But we're going to catch him. It's time you face your record. Mr. Great Embargo. No wonder he's running from his record. But he can't run forever. We got you now, D. Huddleston. Switch to Mitch McConnell for U.S. Senate. I, I gotta tell you, I appreciate you just uh, taking a cold call from a stranger and coming on their weird show in Eastern Kentucky. <laughs> to, we, we've been wanting to talk about Mitch McConnell for a while. We just never really had I'm the source sure, material, yeah. and so yeah. now we did, and we're like, well, let's let's pop on this and see if we could we could get Perrine to come on. But uh, yeah, you know, it's it's my pleasure. I I uh, I enjoy. I I was uh, I, I would love I would much rather speak to. Uh, you guys about Mitch McConnell than like go on MSNBC or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll take that. I'll take that. You know, you might actually need to start going on MSNBC though, because I, I was like reading about how like Maddow, Maddow's like ratings have just completely <coughs> tanked. I guess since yeah. the Russia Gate stuff, they plunged. The, it was like they made they they made a bet. They went all in, and uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. So somebody needs to teach the liberals how to gamble. I, <laughs> I, yeah, I had well, a. I, I agree. <laughs> I, I had a cousin that bet uh, that lost ten thousand dollars one time betting on Southeast Missouri State and Austin P <laughs> in college basketball. Oh, and the hilarious shit is that he played the over in that game, and and he only got the over because he went to triple overtime. <laughs> that that's uh, tantamount to the. Uh, Putting all your eggs right, in the Russia yeah. Gate basket. Yeah, for sure. Bet, betting on college basketball is the craziest thing you can do, in my opinion. <laughs> it's, it's a fickle mistress, no doubt about it. <laughs> yeah, again, thanks, Alex, for being with us. And I guess we'll just uh, open it up talking about uh, our guest is Alex Perrine, uh, who I guess, Alex, maybe you could just introduce yourself uh, a little uh, bit <laughs> sure yeah uh i'm alex perrine uh i'm uh right now i'm a freelance writer um and i have uh worked a lot of places i was a columnist for salon for a few years i was the editor of gawker uh, i was at splinter uh deadspin a couple other places but uh, mainly i'm a writer and an editor uh from minneapolis originally living in brooklyn now for a few years this is uh this is also good for our we're trying to to uh, get all the former Gawker riders. Yeah, yeah. That's true. So we've, we've we've collected a Brendan O'Connor and a Nana Merlin. Now we got. Oh them. yeah, I saw that. I saw Anna just did the show. Yeah. Yeah, that was tight as shit. You man. guys She's are really cool. like Pokemon at this point. <laughs> so anyway, what we're going to be talking about today is uh, Alex's piece in the New Republic called "The Nihilist in Chief." course talking about mitch mcconnell and like i mentioned earlier we've been wanting to talk about mitch mcconnell on this show for a little bit never had the source material and then alex brought it to us so to open it up alex uh you open up this piece talking about uh mitch's response to the shutdown was to take to the washington post op-ed section to deride a set of modest proposals by the democrats which has sort of always been his mo to paint even the most toothless uh, thing the Dems propose as, you know, tantamount to Stalinism. Mm -hmm. And before we get into the banal, evil, all-destructive reign, I wanted to talk about the ways the loyal opposition aids and abets that reign. So our question is, what missteps do you see the Dems sort of consistently making 
that feed into McConnell's way of doing things. The the main thing, um, the main thing that was apparent during the Obama years, especially, was the Democratic tendency to sort of pre-compromise, um, which they did a lot under the assumption that a show of good faith would be met with cooperation uh, or even even appreciation by Republicans. Uh, so there, you know, the, and I think by the end of his second term, he had mostly given up on this. But it, a lot of his uh, the uh, his tenure was sort of marked by this pattern of of trying to meet in the find middle ground with people who were didn't actually have any interest in, in finding middle ground with him. Um, and then so now, you know, now that Obama's out of power and, and Mitch is much more powerful, I think that the main Democratic uh sort of tendency in terms of making mistakes while dealing with McConnell is still um, just underestimating uh, his sort of absolute commitment to uh, to keeping his political power and, and denying it to Democrats. Yeah, one of the things that stuck out to me, you know, while reading this is that McConnell, you know, for all intents and purposes, I mean, he doesn't have a core, as you said at one point. But he does have a vision, um, yeah. which is more than the Democrats have. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it's just fascinating to read. Uh, you know, I think that um, you use the example, I think, of the 2000, was it maybe it was the 2010 or 11 fiscal cliff, when mm. the thing that they, that they bargained um, to get was uh, ostensibly not, I don't know, it's like the thing that the, like, the Democrats wanted to, uh, enact was a series of tax cuts that the Republicans actually favored, but you right, know, the, yeah. the Republicans actually went out of their way to obstruct it. Yeah, yeah. So there, there were a couple things that were going on there, and it was, it, you know, it was actually this sort of um, mess that lasted, you know, over a year. But um, the Obama administration, having sort of basically decided they had solved the recession, um, <laughs> wanted they wanted to pivot to austerity. And like they wanted to do austerity economics, and Republicans did everything they could to block it. That was the insane part. Um, they, you know, they wanted uh, uh, they wanted to shift to balanced budgets, um, and they were open to spending cuts. They wanted a grand bargain. They wanted a compromise, and and um, it culminated basically with um, Simpson Bowles, which was supposed to be this, this you know bipartisan commission to come up with a, a grand bargain of, of spending cuts and 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 tax uh revenue raising as well which is where the, the republicans kept losing their minds but like at its core obama was telling them over and over again he was open to um making social security less generous to cutting benefits for future retirees which is you would think like the ultimate conservative dream they they've been wanting to to kill these programs or gut them or turn them over to the private sector, or yeah. turn them over to the finance industry. They've been wanting to do variations on that since, you know, the Social Security was enacted. Um, and uh, the the credit for blowing up those deals usually goes to John Boehner because he he couldn't control uh, he couldn't control his caucus, and and because um, he ended up rejecting his last deal with the White House. But McConnell was the one who, you know, he he did his his specialty, which was fading into the wallpaper. Um, and just letting other people have these arguments uh, while he just sort of waited to see what would happen. But he never signaled, like, if he had said, um, you know, you'll get a couple of Republicans on board, we'll be on board if you if you promise to uh, adopt this change to Social Security benefits, if you promise uh, to not touch these tax uh, the, these tax rates. Like the Obama, the White the, the White House would have jumped at the opportunity, but uh, by just sort of refusing to even involve himself in the, in the negotiations, he like dealt obama a political loss uh while while also just turning his nose up at what theoretically would have been a policy win for republicans yeah uh, it's interesting like um before we came here i was dropping my brother off at the airport and i was like and he was asking me like oh what are y'all gonna who you're interviewing today what's it about and i was like oh well you know it's about mitch mcconnell and my brother's not totally out of touch i mean he's you know he's in college right now he's, <laughs> he's pretty smart yeah. but he was he was like I don't know who that is. <laughs> it's like that's, it's, it's, I just think it's interesting. Like the, the Mitch guy, would be thrilled to hear that. Exactly. He would be like, Absolutely, he would be delighted that your brother doesn't can't even remember which one he is. <laughs> yeah. So it's like this really crazy thing. It's like you know, Mitch. He's sort of like 
as you put it, like he's got these very sort of simple ambitions, you know, getting his name on a building or something. Yeah. But at the same time, like I think his central preoccupation is reshaping uh, politics, but doing it in a way that isn't obvious. Like he's just sort of, I don't know, yeah. like as you said, he fades into the wallpaper. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, he has, it's, you know, I, I say he has no core and, and I mean that he doesn't, I don't think he's particularly married to the set of policies we associate with modern conservatism because um, he, he never, you know, he didn't evince any interest in them before he was a senator and he only sort of blatantly picked a bunch of them up later. But his vision was definitely like um, one of uh, uh, Republican rule um, that was sort of insulated from from small D Democratic oversight. Yeah. And uh, and and I think that. I think this is probably a vision he developed once he was in office, but he realized that like the engine for this would, would have to be um, just sort of enabling uh, the rich to get much more control over the democratic process. And so then that's what he's sort of spent most of his career trying to do since then. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting. One of the things that I, I pointed out here when we were putting these together is like one of the things that the liberals love to bemoan about McConnell's obstructionism toward what they thought was this great progressive agenda that Obama was laying out toward the end of his second term that, that uh, uh, you know, that Obama was trying to get enacted. But the reality is that McConnell even blocked Obama when he was being cooperative, mm-hmm. uh, like what we were just talking about with some of the Republicans' uh, supposed signature policy goals. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that stuff a little bit more, maybe dispel some of those liberal myths around, like, the Democrats' dealings with McConnell toward the end of Obama's second term. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, you know, a lot of it is what I just talked about, sort of with Obama wanting to pin it to austerity, but that was largely in uh, his first term. But I think, um, you know, but he had uh, sort of uh, stopped trying by the end of the second term to get anything resembling an agenda through the Senate and was sort of trying to govern by other means. But I do. I, I look at something like the Merrick Garland thing. Actually, as a really interesting example, because um, that was uh, another. You could look at it as another example of sort of pre-compromise, where Obama picked someone who um, Republicans had previously said uh, very complimentary things about. So he had picked someone who, you know, uh, in another political reality, Republicans would have been fine with with uh, allowing to to get on the Supreme Court. And McConnell was really, you know, he it was his idea to just say, we're not even going to have hearings on this guy. I'm not going to force you to vote no, because we're just not even going to take up the nomination. Um, and that could have backfired, actually. And I think it was like, it's looked at now as incredibly cunning. I, I describe it as that way, too. But there is a there is a universe where if Trump had lost, like everyone had assumed he would at the time, um, McConnell trades a 66-year-old, extremely moderate, Democratic appointee to the Supreme Court for someone Hillary nominates who's much younger yeah. and presumably more liberal. So he he could have actually like he could have lost on that. And at that point, it, like everything would have come down to his ability to spend literally an entire presidential term trying to block a Supreme Court nomination, <laughs> which would have it would would have been an, he would have tried, but that would have been like an incredibly tall order. Right. This, well, this just occurs to me as you're saying this, Alex. The reason why McConnell is a good gambler, as opposed to the liberals, is because to gamble, you have to know what you want. He yeah. knows what he wants, but the liberals don't know what they want. They never knew what they wanted with the Russiagate shit. It's yeah. just a, yeah. They're just totally, they have, yeah, they, they don't really have any vision. I mean, what they, what, yeah, what they wanted was, to, was for the, the, the difficult uh, political decisions to be taken out of their hands yeah. by, by, by a third party. That's that sort of, that is sort of is what they want. <laughs> yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Yeah. That's how it well, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like, I think that from our perspective, you know, where we live, like, you know, you, you know, you would, you could ask like, well, you know, how does Mitch McConnell keep winning? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, um, because like where we live, uh, you know, I go to some of these black lung meetings with like former coal miners and stuff. Every guy there hates Mitch. Every Ooh. guy, Mitch is hated in Eastern Kentucky, which Ooh. is like really shocking. That's interesting because you'd think it's a stronghold. Yeah, you know, yeah. You'd think it's yeah. it's yeah it's Eastern Kentucky and the hillbillies, you know, that are yeah no halting Lexington, Louisville from getting their way, but not with Mitch McConnell. Yeah, no, Mitch McConnell's base, if you call it that, is like in the sort of greater Louisville area, you know, like the sort of suburbs yeah. and stuff like that. But yeah, he doesn't really have a lot of 
That's interesting. And I was wondering, I actually was kind of wondering, uh, like, because my impression from the outside is that he just sort of drops into the state every six years to, like, <laughs> Well, he campaign. does. Yeah, he <laughs> does. Like, you can see him at the Pine Mountain Grill in Whitesburg, Kentucky, once every six years. You can set <laughs> yeah, your watch exactly, back. And he gives, he gives the same talk about how he helped get US-23, or was it 119 through there, so yeah. they could get the coal trucks in and out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, um, you know, I, I read a little bit about his first elections um, and, you know, his background was um, was Lexington. Like, that's why he was such a moderate and even almost a liberal yeah. um, when he first ran, because he was running to, to, to represent a pretty liberal city. Right. Uh, he was running for, like, the county executive judge, but it, like, it was like, you know, he had to win over the city to win. Yeah. Um, and then he made his hard right turn a lot later on, like, really a lot later on. Uh, so I think his roots were always, like, at first... Um, he wanted to be the sort of anti-busing candidate because it was the 70s and that was sort of the single biggest wedge issue. But he was even too moderate to really push that. Um, and But I think later on, he definitely, like, he's much more a suburbs guy than, like, he was ever, like, what like what people sort of imagine, uh, I think, like, uh, a Kentucky politician would be. He's, like, he's a product of the sort of well reasonably well-off white suburbs all the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Well, and and the thing is, is like, <clears throat> so it's a it's a combination of like he has culled a very specific sort of you know base again. Um, you know, I think Senate races are so strange because it's mm. you know it's like you don't really have to win the whole state; you just have to win certain <laughs> certain yeah demographics. You got I mean, yeah, you got you got to you got to turn out you got to turn out enough people to to beat whoever you're running against. That's right. It. Yeah. But every person that the Democrats put up against him is just hilariously pathetic. <laughs> like the last person that ran against him is uh, 2014. It was Allison Lundergan Grimes, who was the former Secretary of State for Kentucky. And it, it, it's hilarious now to think about how that like this recycled like rich kid, daughter of like a former Democratic kingmaker. Yeah, was Her- like was like. There was so much energy behind her, like she was the one that was mm-hmm. getting ready to do this. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and and she didn't have anything. Uh, all she, again, no vision. It was just like Mitch. It was like Republicans light. Um, yeah, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, he's got, and so he's, you know, he's always going to have um, this enormous war chest, and he's like, he's also like a sort of notoriously willing to get down in the mud with his opponents. Um, uh, and, you know, he, he was uh, Roger Ailes was one of his earliest ad guys. And, um, you know, he, he's like he's a notoriously dirty campaigner. But like, yeah, I mean, I, I do think also like Democrats are just not putting forth. You know, they're they're not willing to try anything other than the same sort of people who they think used to work in the past. And so it's like you, you end up going with name recognition and you end up going with like um, well, you know, this sort of candidate could win a statewide election in 1996. Like, maybe that'll work again. And, like, obviously the political realities on the ground have changed a lot. Yeah. yeah. Was was Roger, was Roger Ailes the uh, genius behind the Bloodhounds commercial? Yeah. Yeah, that was Ailes. Yeah. <laughs> that was actually, it's funny because they, they, they sort of broke up because – Ailes, they both thought they deserved credit for winning the race. So, like, so Ailes was like, Ailes was like, Mitch didn't give me enough credit, and Mitch was like, I won that on my own. So, like, they actually, they didn't actually keep working together after that, which is actually pretty funny. That's fucking hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. the weird paradox of conservative, the conservative movement, right? You've got so many egos in the room. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny. Some of our of our uh, buddies that we've had done a little bit of organizing with on different things, had this grand idea a few years ago. They were going to um, take some bloodhounds of their own to D.C. to uh, confront oh. Mitch. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it yeah. was his, his Kentucky office. It was his Kentucky office. Kentucky office. Yeah. Because, yeah. 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 like, you know, like, I, it's, I see a sort of, like, tepid, lukewarm Democrats in Kentucky, like, they try to do the whataboutism thing with Mitch. Like, they try to do the gotcha thing. And so, like, yeah. the thing that they do a lot is, like, He's never here in his state, and it's just yeah. like that's you know none of these people are. No, yeah, none of these people are. Like nobody cares. Like if you're a also, rich, like, or go ahead. Yeah, one of the defining characteristics of McConnell is like he's just immune to that criticism. Like it just rolls off him totally. And oh, yeah. they, people try it. You just try it with him, and he, I don't even like. There, Democrats love uh, the hypocrisy charge because it's sort of like they like to own you by your own logic, and like 
they're, now they're dealing with politicians who are just immune to it because voters don't actually like they they can sort of they can already see through it. I think voters sort of know what kind of man he is. Yeah. Um, even ones who vote for him. And uh, and they're just like, yeah, find a different like find a different angle here. <laughs> like, yeah. That one's not yeah. working. Well, and, and so that's the thing about your piece. It's, you're not trying to like pull the curtain back and show us who McConnell actually is or whatever. You're, you're trying to show like how adept he's been at completely reshaping and transforming um, the sort of, uh, you know, sort of political institutions to uh, purely court capital. Like that's mm-hmm. really that, you know, and, and there's two things that you point out in the article, like the two things he's most consistent about is campaign finance and uh, the judiciary. Mm. And and so, you know, I, I just think that's interesting. Like, I guess, could you talk a little bit about that? Like what you're saying is basically like he's essentially like defanged the Senate. Like he's made it completely... Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's not really a legislative body anymore. It's uh, it's essentially like he's moved that to the judiciary. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's one of the ironies um, of his career was that he he did it. He always um, he was always wanted to be uh, the Senate Majority Leader, and he uh, always wanted to be spoken of in the same way that people like LBJ were. But yeah, like the end result of his career is that the Senate is where like almost any political proposal just goes to die, (laughs) you know, like they could Democrat or Republicans, Republicans couldn't get their own. um, They couldn't get their own healthcare bill through their own Senate. They nearly failed on the tax cut, which is like the only thing that they live for at this point at the political party is tax cuts. Yeah. Um, And uh, um, like really all it exists to do is stymie um, like potentially progressive things from happening. Like that's the job of the Senate now. Is just to, to stop good things, <laughs> um, and you know I, I would imagine that the, those earlier masters of the Senate had slightly higher ambitions than that. But like that's that's the only possible end result of of using every parliamentary maneuver you can to um, install a reactionary judiciary and and just enable um, an endless amount of, of of money in elections. Like that's the only possible result. So it, it was all sort of inevitable that it would come to this. Yeah. Well, it's like. there's just a really great quote in here that you have like uh is compared to like the sort of neocons like like the neocons wanted power in order to use it to shape the world mcconnell mcconnell wanted to shape the world into one in which he continues to have power and he did and it's like and that's again it goes back to him like he actually has a vision um and he's has worked very hard to implement it over the years I, I don't really have much. Uh, there's no question there. It's just the. Uh... Yeah, totally. I mean, and the yeah, the 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 comparison with the neocons is funny. Or even you can you know comparing the movement conservatives. I think like um, his vision is a lot narrower than um, the movement conservatives because they actually wanted sort of transformation of society. Um, and he like he got it. He got his transformation already. His transformation was sort of legalistic, and it was um, uh, economic. And he basically got it. Uh, and he doesn't have a, you know, uh, the neocons wanted to sort of exercise American power abroad. And when the Iraq war looked like it was going to hurt Republicans in the polls in 2006, McConnell went into Bush's office and he said, let's pull out. That is <laughs> fucking like, amazing to me. Yeah, <laughs> to me. Yeah. I never knew yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, because he went and it's in Bush's, it's in Bush's memoir, actually. And yeah, McConnell was like, um, look like this Iraq thing, it's not working for us. It's going to, it's going to hurt some of our guys in their elections. Like, eh, let's, let's cut our losses. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah no it's he has like a long sort of long-term agenda that he's trying to implement and i yeah i don't know it's it's um you know i i, I guess a question i have about it is like what do you think that bodes for the future of the conservative movement because like as you point out in the 2016 GOP convention, he was basically booed by you know the more yeah. sort of evangelical uh, set, and like after Trump and McConnell, like is there any is there any glue that's sort of binding? Because you know you have another like a uh, quote in there about like Trump basically won because he was able to make somehow in yeah. his like weird brain addled way made a coalition of people who hate republicans on one hand and on the other hand people republicans who still vote for mitch yeah and yep. so it's just like i just would yeah that's, yeah, that's what i think a lot a lot of political analysts forget about when they're asking why trump won was that he brought in 
people who hate Republicans into the, the tent. Um, I don't know if he'll be able to recreate that. He might, but I, it was like actually like he, you know, he ran as the guy who was beating up on all the other Republicans. And then so he's going on TV at all these debates and just like just completely destroying all of these unlikable Republican losers. Um, and then <laughs> meanwhile, in the background, like he's got Federalist Society guys telling him, here are the judges you're going to pick. And yeah. with Mitch's with Mitch's advice and consent, um, they're they're saying, like, here's how you signal to all the people who vote based on judges that you're on their side. Um, but he said the future like this is actually funny, like the Republican Party has been saved from from some sort of reckoning twice now. Um, and what keeps what the glue that's keeping it together is victory. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and money like money is sort of the fuel of the engine. Money's fueling these unlikely victories that sort of keep this coalition from cracking up. It should have cracked up after 2008. Um, it should have cracked up with Trump winning the nomination. That should have been the second thing that cracked it up. And both times, like, thanks in large part to huge, huge, huge amounts of money flowing through the system. Uh, they managed to, to win these surprise victories. And that's what sort of keeps it going. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I think <laughs> the craziest thing to me about Mitch McConnell is that I think he understands better than anybody else in D.C. how deeply unpopular conservatives are in, totally, in this yeah. country. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think he knows. And that's why and the, the, the smart Republicans who do know that, like, um, they have a couple, like, there are some Republicans who after, who's been spending years saying, like, like look at, you know, look at the demographics. Everyone under 50 hates us. That's not sustainable. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, um, but, you know, the McConnell's, like, his wing of smart Republicans is like, yeah, but we can block a lot of these people from, you know, getting to the polls. We can we can stop that. We can demoralize them. Um, and we can overwhelm them with money. And we, can, we can't keep this up forever. We can keep it up long enough to, like, to win in the short term. And yeah. that's, like, he's a short, I mean, he really is, he had a long game, but he's a short-termist at heart. Like he, he's like um, obviously not concerned about you know the future. Right. <laughs> like right. He would be he would be a very different sort of person if he had <laughs> if he was worried about what America will look like a hundred years from now. Totally. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Totally. And I, you know, I think it's the you know for a guy that's put so much emphasis on electoral politics, the strategy is sort of packing out the judiciary and getting all of you know his and Trump's picks ran through the express lane and all this stuff. The sort of like is going to pad them out for a generation. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, and like that's, well, you know, that's kind of their death rattle, right? Like that's all they've got. Yeah, and the, and it's that in a funny way too, like that. So he's ensuring the future of their politics being successful, um, mainly through the ju ju the judiciary having a veto on everything um, other future coalitions will try to do for decades. But like that's you know that's that's a hollow victory for the people who signed up for conservatism based on sort of um, almost rapture-like ideas of their side finally winning some grand culture war, you know? Right. Like, they, 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 they signed up uh, to defeat the libs um, culturally. And, uh, and Mitch is like, you know, we're, we've won. We won. But the, what that victory looks like is um, Betsy DeVos will never have to pay up taxes on when she dies, you know, like, like, her, heirs will, <laughs> right. like her heirs are going to get every penny of that with the, the uncle Sam touching it. Right. Exactly. Um, I guess one thing I'm curious about, I play a little like, uh, um, fictional speculation here, speculative fiction. It's like, Okay, so like let's say for example um, that a Democrat does win in twenty twenty. Um, I it's hard for me to say whether it's Bernie or, or or someone to the right of Bernie, but like what is Mitch's sort of stranglehold on the Senate bode for um, a executive branch that's run ostensibly by a progressive? Or, or do we have to look forward to another four years of uh, an Obama type? situation or, or can mitch's power be broken can it be can it be broken I mean, it, it could be but it would take it would it would take um really a lot of pretty unprecedented uh and 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 like extreme moves i think and the number one i mean you know the number one thing you have to do is is find a way to devolve the power of the senate um it's like it's just an absurd it's an absurd leg legislative body that like doesn't really have um no no other like 
stable liberal democracy, if there are any left. But none of them have anything like the Senate. The, the House of Lords had its power stripped from it 100 years ago, basically. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't like there are like a lot of ways you can do that that are um, that would not require a constitutional amendment. Um, I think like you'd have to start looking at like adding states and other things like that. Um, but, you know, the best thing you can sort of hope to do is like win 50 plus one senators and repeal the filibuster and then go from there. And like, I think that's what you would really end up having to do. And like, ideally I'd like to see a world where like all the Senate does is it's just like, a, you know, a, a, a rubber check on, on, or a, a, just a, like a confirms judges for presidents and like, like let's let the house actually do the legislating and shit like that. But I don't know. It's, it's actually like, this is a, this is a challenge for like political scientists a lot smarter than me to figure out like, how do we get rid of the Senate without like uh, having to rewrite the part of the constitution that says we have to have it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, again, it, just to sort of bring it back to what we were talking about earlier. Like it's incredible to me how um, Mitch's move isn't necessarily to make the Senate stronger. It's to make it yeah. not work. And Cause as you say in the piece, it's much easier to simply make things not work. If the only outcome you care about is electoral. Yeah. 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 And like, um, I do, you know, I, I think like, He's obviously not going to do this forever, and, and someday there will be a, a different Republican leader who will have a different vision. And at that point, things might work differently. Um, but uh, like the for the you know for the foreseeable future, like it's hard to see how a Democrat gets around him. And you know he is actually like getting up there. So, but senators also have been known to serve till they're 110. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No guarantees. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, uh, what else you got down there, Tom? Well, no, we kind of we kind of hit on all my do we things that I laid out here. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I was when I was thinking about this part about the Senate and like like you know the like how it's sort of been this body that like all the most ambitious people that don't quite have like the chops to be president or something like that have mm-hmm. utilized. I, I was also thinking about too, and I know this is kind of dumb, but. The Dick Cheney movie, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know how he kind of found the back door to power by, yeah. you know, redefining the vice president. I, I kind of wanted to talk about that, that that kind of stuff a little bit, like how yeah. guys like Mitch, you know, find the hacks, yeah, <laughs> sort of to power. And so it's like what I was saying: the Senate is such an idiosyncratic institution for a country this large to have um, a, a non-proportional national legislature that is so small. Um, gives each one of those individual people a, a lot of power. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you know, the way they're elected, like, he's obviously, like, he's not, like, like I can't do anything about the fact that he keeps winning his elections beyond throwing money at whatever uninspiring candidate the Democrats put up against him. Um, so, like, um, it's because of the idiosyncratic nature of a legislature that um, is so small for such a large country um, that is not proportional, so it's not has, has no bearing on on what the actual sort of opinion shifts in the country actually are, um, and like he's only electorally accountable to the population of one state. Um, like I, I, you know, have, I can't do anything about him being reelected over and over again, right? Right. <laughs> except for write the right magazine articles about him, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and so it, it attracts people who want power but no they couldn't win it like by actually uh winning over a majority of people right um right. If, you know and and that's like mitch mcconnell is the epitome of someone who like knows he could not go out there and sell what he's trying to sell and win over 51 percent of the country like he's well aware of that but he knows he just has to win over first he has to win over whatever portion of kentuckians vote and then he has to win over his own colleagues in the in the in the Senate GOP. Right. And what's actually the most surprising thing about his career has been the fact that he managed to win over his own college in the Senate GOP. Right. He was not he was not like he was not a beloved figure in, in the Senate GOP before he became majority leader by any means. Um, John McCain and him like fought they fought and fought about campaign finance reform viciously and it got personal. Um, and, and like it really says something about how he radicalized the Republican Party that by the end you know, McCain was not opposing him for leader. Like, I think they're, they're, the votes for leader are behind closed doors, but there was never anyone running against him. No one, he ran unopposed. And McCain was never like, this guy who 
I think is personally corrupt and who fought my one of my main policy proposals should not be the leader. So I don't know that like uh, he he found a way to, to get in there and, and and like make the Senate the place to enact his his agenda. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, another thing about those guys, too, like, you know, we were just talking about Dick Cheney and then, of course, Mitch McConnell. Like they come from states that are sort of like marginal and like don't have any real big TV markets. Not that like Mitch now would need like a ton of money yeah. to run, but yep. like in the seventies before he married Elaine Chow, you know, yep. Kentucky was probably a pretty ideal place to set up shop because yeah. you know like what's your biggest TV market like the Cincinnati area or something yeah. like that. You yeah. know, yeah, totally, yeah. And like he, I mean, he's I think he's prided himself on, on outraising his opponent every time he's run for anything. But like that meant a lot. That's exactly what you're saying. Like that that was a lot smaller amount of money back when he was first running for stuff. And so you can get people who, um, you know, like it's a, it's it's easier to get control of a of a party apparatus in a in a state like that that's where it's like uh these things don't require as much money you know like california is and you know texas is an incredibly difficult place to run for anything um but uh yeah you can you can sort of get through in the in the mid-size the mid-size states that don't have mega cities in them like you can you can you can definitely like advance pretty far yeah like i know a lot of people like that run for shit in west virginia do that they kind of stay away from the dc like suburbs of west virginia like the harper's yeah. ferry kind of shepherdstown area right and kind of you know kind of filter down into charleston and right. stuff where you yeah. know it's a little cheaper to <laughs> to get in on the ground floor right yeah but yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, good, that's a good strategy yeah, <laughs> oh yeah not, no, not totally. but yeah none of these guys bios like where are they born and it's like you know fucking kansas you know or texas or wherever and it's never <laughs> west virginia or kentucky or right anything. right well yeah. mitch mitch wasn't born in kentucky which he was always sort of sensitive about when he was first running for stuff yeah he's from yeah, alabama he, yeah 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 but, yeah oh i actually did not even know that until just now yeah, we sent them Bear Bryant. They sent us. <laughs> <laughs> not a net positive. Yeah, not yeah. not a fair trade off, really. Um, well, yeah, the, the I guess if we're talking about abolishing things, the Senate's got to go. But I feel like states probably also yeah. got to go. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it's there. You know, we can keep them for like uh, historical, like for like you know, just for as like a historical thing, but like they shouldn't, they should not be a way that we elect presidents and, and, uh, manage the Senate. Like those borders, which are already sort of effectively, like they don't, you know, no one is checking your papers when you're crossing state borders. Right. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, they, it's like, it's a crazy way to divide up management of the country. And then, you know, the, the fact that, uh, federalism, um, is mainly now just, a sort of byword for how conservatives want to impose their policy without having to win national elections. Right. Like that, that just goes to tell you like who it serves, you know, like that's, that's the whole point. Of it. Exactly. It just serves business interests. Bourgeois yeah. Interest. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's crazy that like, you know, because of, uh, the, the way we do regulations and like we have, ta- we have States that are tax havens. Yeah. Like we have like international tax havens. Like Delaware, to, I think. Yeah. You, yeah. You can go to the Cayman <laughs> Islands. You can go to Delaware. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it is. It's a, it's a, it's an international tax haven. It's wild. But yeah, it's absolutely insane. <laughs> um, well, uh, I think that was all the all the questions I I had. Um, but I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit more about the Senate, Tom. Uh, well, before we part, I, I I like to play a little game called What What Could. Okay. All of our branches of government look like if we, you know, you know, we talk about abolishing the Senate, abolishing the states, and all this stuff. Like if, if you two had to recreate this sham of a country, mm. what would the structures look like? What would you keep, throw out, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I think you'd have to have a comprehensive overhaul of the judiciary. I mean, I think that you would have to, uh, you'd have yeah. to rethink entirely our approach to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, to law and jurisprudence and everything. Um, yeah, and then obviously, I mean, I mean, I think that like, I don't think that there's anything wrong with the sort of parliamentary uh, type of governance system. I mean, you know, in a in a country that isn't ruled by capitalism, yeah. I think it could. More yeah. Egalitarian, I think yeah, I think yeah. it could be a pretty good instrument for democracy. But yeah, I, I mean, I I actually think like the the Westminster system, Westminster parliamentary system is like 
maybe the most elegant way we've come up with to do representative democracy. And then, so if you want to do representative democracy, I feel like that's probably best practices. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and if you combine it with basically like proportional representation, um, and I think actually, I think if you look at like, it's this is a, like, maybe I'm wrong, but I think New Zealand actually has like uh, ranked choice voting and parliamentary democracy. And like generally, like the outcomes are a little bit more reflective of what people actually want than they are here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, if we're talking about like, uh, reshaping society it really it's like a root and branch like you know we get we have to be sort of figure like uh you know if we're we have to actually get a judici judiciary that that believes in applying like any of those constitutional amendments that are supposed to prevent the the uh police from illegal search and seizure and and cruel and unusual punishment it's like it's wild it's all that is just ignored so it's like uh, you know, obviously we, we'll, we'll dismantle capitalism and then once we're done doing that, <laughs> we'll figure out. <laughs> we'll first figure things out, first. Like, like who's going to be, yeah, who's going to be in our, in our nice new, in our nice new Congress. <laughs> so, well, yeah, you have to figure out a way to detangle, um, yeah. the last 150 years of jurisprudence from, uh, capitalism. And I don't know it yet. Yeah, it's, I, I struggle, I, I struggle with this a lot. Cause I, like, in my head, I'm like, at what point does like uh, sort of cultural beliefs end in actual um, sort of policy begin? Like, for example, I think like culturally we're a very punitive country. Mm -hmm. um, but like, I don't know, like if you're talking about like uprooting this. You kind of understand yeah. that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. I undersold that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's actually that's actually a, a question I struggle with, too, because I, I do think like. A lot of people who care a lot about criminal justice reform don't always grapple with the fact that, like, culturally as a country, we really hate criminals, and what we like, and we sort of use them in America. We use them as, um, in as the the socially and politically acceptable version of an underclass, basically. Right. Like, and so you know, it's it's okay to do anything to criminals, and like that's a lot of stuff is democrat like democratically popular, and that's that's the hard part. And I do, I actually, I think think. I think things are, are the culture is finally shifting on that a little bit. I see signs that that's changing, uh, but that's it's it's hard to uproot that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it, it will be difficult. Um, it can be done. Uh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the Jacobins tried it, you know, and <laughs> had their <laughs> Republican baptisms and whatnot. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Well, I don't know. Does that does it, what are you about you, Tom? Does that uh, does our does our sort of speculative whatever measure yeah, up to your I think standards? We I think we should abolish the states, abolish the Senate, abolish state governments. They just hold such an inordinate amount of power. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, and I feel like we could just keep the state lines and like so everybody can have their own like little tribal thing. <laughs> yeah, the but, people can still yeah, like I can still root for the Vikings. Right. Know, but yeah. Like, yeah. It's like that's not. <laughs> people can still buy like y'all star shirts with the shape of Kentucky on it that says home underneath. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just you wouldn't have Matt Bevan or Hal Rogers right. or Mitch McConnell to, to right. Sort of, right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Well, uh, hopefully they make us king tomorrow, and we can uh, we can yeah. we can do all this. I heard Mueller Mueller just decided that actually <laughs> that was in the report. That's, that, the that's last in the Mueller yeah. report. <laughs> yeah, I, there's this podcast I know in Kentucky. And <laughs> I really like I really like their ideas. <laughs> Should have fucking known. Should have done some good stuff down there, young blood. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> Hey, yeah. Well, Alex, thanks so much for coming on, dude. I uh, appreciate yeah. you, uh, your insight. Yeah, and thanks. I've always enjoyed your writing, and uh, it's good to Thank good you. to meet you in sort of in person. So. Yeah, yeah. If, if you um, if you want to say again where your writing can be found, Alex. Yes. Uh, that so the Mitch McConnell piece was in the New Republic. It's in the print magazine. You can read it online right now. But if you wanted to buy a magazine for some for nostalgia, you can go buy a magazine, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, you can see. Uh, more of my writing there sometimes, and I actually will should have something in the next issue of the Baffler magazine as well. And then, uh, you know, if you know, just look for me on Twitter. I'll tell you, I'll tell you where to find it. 
Yeah. Um, Terrence, you got something in the baffler today. I've got something well, in the baffler. Plug that I'll plug. real quick while we're this, <laughs> yeah. this week. Yeah. Well, I do have something in the baffler today. Um, it's about rural America. Uh, and it actually kind of ties into this because the weird sort of like world that we live in means that like aspects of rural America actually have more political uh, power over the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it has more, uh, you know, it, there is a sort of disproportionate political power, and we were just talking about that, the fact that, like, you have senators from a state uh, with a population the size of a, of a city block in Chicago or something will have more power um, than the representatives yeah. from those places. Um, but, yeah, no, it, I guess the whole point of the article is that Rural America uh, contains the the resources, the goods, the materials. <laughs> um, you know the raw, you know, timber, coal, oil, mm. food, and so that's got to be. You know the the flow of that from the rural provinces has to be maintained at all costs because that's where the profit yep. comes from. Yep. And uh, so, anyways, that's. It, I'll it, check it out. Yeah, it sounds good. I'll read it. <laughs> it was a, it was a response to Paul Krugman's article last week. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, Get, cool. He was getting real about rural America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, anyways, uh, so yeah, I didn't mean to step on your plug there, Al. <laughs> Feel free. It's your it's your show. Plug your stuff. <laughs> great, great point. Good point. Um, well, thanks again, Alex. And uh, you know, we'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, totally. It was fun. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah thanks, man. We appreciate it, and we'll we'll talk to you soon. All right. Cool. See ya. Bye songs of love Then when the hurdy-gurdy man came singing songs of